0: Hello, and welcome to Pontifex. I'm Fry. And I'm Bree, and today we are supplementing the gigantic episode that is Pope Gregory the Great with a small bonus episode, which will also be our last episode of the year. Can you believe 2019? It's pretty much over. <laughs> it's gone. Yeah, and uh, now we're going to start 2020 on a high note, don't worry. Well, I shouldn't say that. We're going to start 2020 on an interesting papal note. It'll be a high note for us, but perhaps a low note for the papacy. In this episode, we are going to acknowledge and cover the works and writings of Pope Gregory I, which we couldn't have done. Any justice to if we had included it in our actual episode, which we recorded for like three recording sessions, and we don't even know at this point that we're recording this how long the final cut will be. But it's gonna be long. (laughs) I can give you an estimate.
1: So part one is 45 minutes. Ooh. Part two is 55 minutes. And I'm currently 20 minutes
0: through part three. That's pretty good. I thought it might end up being longer than that. (laughs) Well, this was the part that we needed to take out to make it cohesive, but it is very important. And even taking all the writings out to be their own separate episode here, there's still no way that we will even come close to acknowledging them all. Because first off, there are almost 900 epistles that were written by Gregory that have been preserved and collected. Right off the bat, there's there's no way that we could have covered all of those. So these 900 epistles are collected in what is now called the Registrum Epistolarum. And they alone clearly are a huge body of work. And this is because Gregory was one of the first and most successful popes to use scribal copies of papal letters, which he then had kept in a registrum for posterity. and clearly it worked. So he's one of the only popes in about a period of 600 years of history who has any kind of real corpus to him. So, you know, we're we're a little bit before him and for a long time after him, there's no way to get a papal quote from an epistle because they just don't exist. In doing the research for Gregory's actual episode, I referenced well over a hundred of these epistles, and for anybody who wants to know more about Gregory, they are a wonderful insight to his ideas and his motivations, as well as his relationships with everyone that he wrote to. This is as close as we can actually get to any kind of minutia with any of the popes we've covered so far, and a lot of what we covered about his policies and his thoughts come from the letters in the Registrum Epistolarum. And so we're not going to spend any more time on that, or we'll be here forever. But they are available online, for the most part, if you want to read them. So what I have done to encapsulate his work into a cohesive little minisode is I have chosen four major works or subjects to talk about with Gregory that are the most important and significant to what he does. So we're going to cover the rules for the pastor, the commentary on Job, the dialogues, and his sermons. So many. But just briefly, I want to touch on what makes Gregory's works useful in the eyes of the church, because the main thing that we have to acknowledge with Gregory is that, unlike someone like Pope Leo the Great, Gregory is not writing new theology or trying to cement or even clarify orthodoxy. That is not what he is about. Nothing that he writes is profound in the sense of being new doctrine. The majority of his theological work is in commentary or in promotion of pre-existing theology that he found to be the most compelling, like repopularizing Augustinian theology or heavily promoting the doctrines of asceticism and the rule of St. Benedict and the virtues and the values of monasteries. So if he's just writing about theology and doctrine that have already been written about and established within the church, it raises the question, why? Why is he considered to be such a prolific and important writer? Why is he so popular? Why is he considered the foundation of medieval spirituality if he hasn't written any theology? Most of this has to do with the fact that Gregory provided accessible commentary. Just like the sermons that we mentioned in his episodes, Gregory wrote and spoke about theology in a way that was personal and relatable, and his message was always one of practical wisdom taken from scripture that actually applied to the Christians listening to him preach or reading what he wrote for a very, very long time to come. So he's not writing theology because he wasn't writing for theologians. The value of him is that he's writing in a pastoral style. He's speaking directly to his audience and connecting to their real life and their real concerns and their real struggles with their spiritual lives. He brought thoughts and questions that were generally highbrow and inaccessible directly to the masses in a way that they could understand and be inspired by. He's like doing the teacher who raps thing, but in a way that's actually successful. Oh, I made a frown. (laughs) Yeah, because that's a that's an example that doesn't work. But he's basically trying to make this accessible. Like if you found Someone who teaches Shakespeare in a way that makes sense to a high school class. This is kind of what he's doing with theology. And in doing this, Gregory wasn't shying away from the tougher issues. Like He wrote openly about what it meant to fail and what it meant to be tempted, not only in the struggles and pitfalls of life, but also in times of success. And this is this is a big one we'll come back to. And of course, as a monk who did not want to be pope... His commentaries about the conflict between duty and personal contemplation has some hugely personal overtones. But this is essentially why he was so insanely popular, and why his works lead to a very different-looking Christianity in the Middle Ages. You know, spiritual discussions are out in the open, and they were there for everyone to take something from. Not that that's always going to go well through the Middle Ages, but... You get the point. Yes. So with that in mind, we are going to start with Liber Pastoralis Curi, which is known in English as the Rules for the Pastor or Book of Pastoral Rule. It was written in 590 in the first year of Gregory's papacy, and it began as a response to a question in a letter by John the Bishop of Ravenna and kind of morphed into a treatise on the duties and responsibilities of a bishop. And what Gregory wrote down in this treatise was exactly how he intended to carry out his papacy. And since that point, it has become a foundational text for any level of the clerics in the church to abide by. In the Liber Pastoralis, Gregory's main focus is on the bishop's responsibilities in spiritual guidance of souls and as an intercessor with God. So he likens a bishop either to being a pastor of a flock or a skilled physician of the soul who could, quote, be conversant with all forms of spiritual disease and suit his treatment to all cases. So he makes it clear that only men skilled in such an art should assume the authority of the Episcopate because, quote, for who could be ignorant that the sores of the thoughts of men are more occult than the sores of the bowels? So, if you have, you know, a thought that is plaguing you, it's somewhat like having a sore inside of your bowel plaguing you.
1: Yeah, that's not a place you want to soar. No fistulas here. I was gonna make an a joke, but you said sores and not just bad poops. <laughs> Could you activia your sores? Probably not. You should not. The Jamie Lee Curtis poop yogurt will not
0: save you or your soul. It might save you from bad poops, though. The book is divided into four parts. The first is all about what sort of man should be a bishop. And it's very focused on this physician of the soul metaphor and how important it is to only place men who have this important understanding and skill set into positions of spiritual authority. It also expounds on the dangers of elevating ignorant men to be bishops. Hence it is that, in the gospel, the truth in person says, if the blind lead the blind, both fall into the ditch. Matthew 15, 14. For indeed, those persons are eyes who, placed in the very face of highest dignity, have undertaken the office for spying out the road, while those who are attached to them and follow them are denominated backs. And so, when the eyes are blinded, the back is bent, because when those who go before lose the light of knowledge, those who follow are bowed down to carry the burden of their sins. So he goes on to talk about how no man should be placed in any position of authority or government without proper study to properly gird them from the temptations of the prosperity of power. And of course, because it's also Gregory, it comments on the conflict between holding an occupation that governs over others and personal spiritual contemplation. You know, the thing he's personally very upset about. The second book lays out how the personal life of a bishop should be spiritually focused, grounded in humility and contemplation. Like, the first line is literally, "...the conduct of a prelate ought so far to transcend the conduct of the people as the life of a shepherd is wont to exalt him above the flock. It is necessary, then, that in thought he should be pure, in action chief, discreet in keeping silence, profitable in speech, a near neighbor to everyone in sympathy, exalted above all in contemplation, a familiar friend of good livers through humility, unbending against the vices of evildoers through zeal for righteousness, not relaxing in his care for what is inward from being occupied in outward things, nor neglecting to provide for outward things in his solicitude for what is inward. So all of those things, the rest of that book builds off of that. The third book is dedicated to laying out precisely how a bishop should teach his flock and the clerics underneath him, as well as how he should rebuke them when necessary. Like, there is a chapter dedicated to laying out the differences between various circumstances and people who should be admonished differently.
1: Ooh boy, you in trouble, chapter.
0: Yeah, so it's like, you should admonish men and women differently, poor and rich, joyful and sad, wise and dull, etc. Chastise them all differently. (laughs) People have different standards. Yeah, exactly. And the chapters that follow are more detailed examples of how you should treat those people differently. And the fourth book is centered on self-reflection for the bishop and to remind them not to fall into vice, including overconfidence or arrogance. Using that physician metaphor again, it warns the bishop not to let his own spiritual health succumb to the diseases that he seeks to cure in others. So overall, it's a very balanced set of guidelines that promoted Gregory's deep commitment to being accessible with the people and to not lose sight of the aspects of spiritual, of personal spirituality in the clerics in the church. And this is why it would become one of the most influential works on the topic ever and the literal handbook for the Catholic clergy, which will get disseminated through the whole of Christendom translated and sent all across the Eastern Empire by Emperor Maurice, taken to England with Gregory's mission led by Augustine of Canterbury, translated later by King Alfred the Great, and given to the bishops of Charlemagne, and so much more. And the entire thing is available online through New Advent, so you can read it too. I assume that Deacon Dad had to read this book in order to get his position.
1: Deacon Dad used to dictate his uh, deacon homework papers to me so that I could just type them really fast. I type fast, you know. So, you know, he would he used to just uh spit his thoughts out at me and uh then I would type them and then he would poke at it and make it a paper, make it his homework. And I'm pretty sure this was one of them.
0: It sounds like it would be, right? It, it is still the handbook that they use, and it goes all the way back to Pope Gregory I, so it's considered very, very important. But moving on to the commentaries of Job. The Mania Moralia, or more directly, what is the commentaries on Job, was one of Gregory's earliest famous writings and was probably written in the 580s before he was pope in that period when he returned to the monastery after serving as apocryseriat in Constantinople as the title suggests it's Gregory's theological and personal commentaries on the book of Job in the Bible it's six volumes comprising of 35 books the work explains this section of the Bible historically allegorically, and then interprets the morality, chapter by chapter. We are not going to dig into it because it's digging deep into scripture, but the whole thing, again, is available online if you want to read it. Meta. So what we can take away from this is the level of deep and focused study in just one representation of how Gregory becomes a master of scripture and how he could use it to bring practical wisdom to his sermons. So if he's doing this chapter by chapter, and then looking at the historical context and the allegorical context of the moral complex, like, he's dissecting this thing. And then there's the dialogues. And for the dialogues, Gregory's actually earned himself another epithet, because he's not known as Gregory the Great in the Eastern Church, but rather as St. Gregory the Dialogist, in specific reference to this work. And this one's a little bit more fanciful than the rest because it's a collection of four books where Gregory compiles the lives of saints, particularly the life of St. Benedict of Nursia, his favorite monkey man. You love that man. I just realized that monkey is also like, you know, monkey, ooh, ooh, ah, ah, but yeah, no, you.
1: Well, so uh, you would say things like he wanted to be holy, as in W.H., O-L-L-Y, but like,
0: also could be H-O-L-Y. He did want to be holy in, yep. Yeah, well now we also have Saint Benedict of Nursia as a monkey man, so. <laughs> Do with that what you will! <laughs> so, the dialogues besides, you know, capturing the life of this monkey man, also records miracles and healings done. Uh,
1: you've gotten that Melt Banana song stuck in my head.
0: Banana
1: song? Melt Banana. We're going on a detour. What the f*** is this? Goodness, okay. You did this to yourself?
0: I I did it to you myself. You said
1: monkey man too many times. <laughs> <laughs>
0: This is why Fry is the one who curates trash. (laughs) Look,
1: that wasn't me. That was Dano.
0: Oh, I see. That's very strange. So anyways, the dialogues. (laughs) They cover miracles and healings done by holy monks, depictions of heaven and hell and purgatory and musings about the soul and, and things like that. Although this is not the first hagiography hey in the historical record, it's definitely one of the books that starts that tradition of hagiography, hey which we know becomes wildly popular throughout the Middle Ages and produces one of our favorite works, The Golden Legend. So Gregory is popularizing this tradition of writing down the miracles and lives of the saints.
1: Uh, so he's starting his own genre, as it were. He's
0: fan it up. So we're going to <laughs> just let me hanging there.
1: I'm sorry. I just suddenly, my brain went, I wonder what AO3 tags it would have.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so we're going to finish with a brief look at Gregory's sermons and one in particular, which left a lasting and controversial legacy on the conceptualization of a biblical figure up into the modern day. We have over 60 sermons preserved from Gregory. Primarily focused directly on scripture. There are 40 sermons on the Gospels, 22 on Ezekiel, and two on the Song of Songs. And this list is far from extensive because we know for sure there were sermons on Proverbs and the prophets and more, which have definitely been lost to history. Now, these are the sermons that were so powerful for the Christians of Rome that we talked about while discussing Gregory's style and what was so important to him in his papacy because, you know, he's using those practical anecdotes and applying scripture to the current circumstances of the people. But I want to focus on just one sermon. And this is an Easter sermon that was preserved in the Patrologia Latina. And this is 76, 1237 to 1246. In this sermon, Gregory identified Mary of Bethany, the sister of Lazarus, to be Mary Magdalene. And in doing so, this identified Mary Magdalene as the sinner who anointed Christ's feet in the book of Luke. Therefore, Gregory is indirectly responsible for the widespread conceptualization of Mary Magdalene as a prostitute.
1: Well, good job, Gregory. You did that. You did that thing. Gregory did that. You tarnished her name forever.
0: Yeah. So for those of us who are not intimately familiar with the Bible, including myself, uh Gregory stated, quote, that the woman Luke called a sinner and John called Mary was the Mary out of whom Mark declared that seven demons were cast. And this refers to Luke 7:37, John 11:2 and 12:3 and Mark 16:9 and suggesting that all these passages are the same Mary. And I have these Bible verses. I might get you to read them because I talk so much.
1: That's fine. That makes more sense why she was then like following them around. Like it was if they cast a bunch of demons out of her and she's like, I'm better now.
0: Yeah. I mean, but this is due to his conflation of these biblical verses. So you can take it away and give them all to us.
1: All right. John 11:2 At this time a man named Lazarus was sick he lived in Bethany the village of Mary and her sister Martha Mary whose brother Lazarus was sick would later anoint the lord with perfume and wipe his feet with her hair John 12:3 Then Mary took about a pint of pure nard an expensive perfume she poured it on Jesus' feet and wiped his feet with her hair. That's so ineffective. Right? And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. Mark sixteen nine. Now when Jesus was risen early the first day of the week, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene, out
0: of whom he had cast seven devils. Those, according to Gregory, are all the same Mary. But this identification of Mary Magdalene is hotly contested and very, very controversial. And I'm sure we've all seen The Da Vinci Code by now.
1: Like, I mean... I don't remember anything about it. Except
0: maybe there was, like, a puzzle tube. There was a puzzle tube. Congratulations. So the whole crux of that movie was that Mary Magdalene was not a prostitute. She was the wife of Christ. That, that was the whole thing. So they're basically popularizing this controversy. Even the church has removed this conflation between Mary Magdalene and the quote-unquote sinful woman from doctrine in the 1969 overhaul. So even they are not saying that they are the same people in a canon-slash-doctrinal sort of way. But unfortunately, for the most part, thanks to Gregory, Mary Magdalene will go down in history as a prostitute. So yeah. But it has definitely shaped the view of her throughout all of history and how people have, you know, framed her. So that is a thing. And and that's Gregory's fault. So he had some lustful thoughts about Mary Magdalene. He certainly had some lustful thoughts and he wanted to be thrown onto those thorn bushes. As we wrap up this little bonus episode, I want to say again that we are barely scratching the surface of all of Gregory's many, many, many preserved writing records. And that most excitingly, you can read the majority of his works online, which is something we have really not had yet for a pope. And that in itself is a pretty strong commentary of the legacy that he's left on the character of the church. I'm glad he put all this stuff in a fireproof safe. As we would say, he baked that tablet so that we did not lose the material. So for now, this is going to conclude our massive journey throughout all that Gregory is and finally move on to our next pope. But we hope you've had a wonderful year listening to Pontifacts. Thank you for sticking with us. We have so many more exciting stories to come. 2020 is going to be a year where things get very different for our popes than what they have been here in this early church segment. So have the happy holidays. I can't remember if this is coming out before or after Christmas, but I hope everyone has a wonderful holiday and a great new year, and we'll see you in 2020. Yep. And if you haven't gotten a papal indulgence from Patreon yet, we're recording in advance, and you're getting one in 2020. We promise. Thank you, and goodbye. Bye!